And if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want you to open them up to the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. It's going to be hard for some of you to find. Jude is a very small letter. In fact, on some of your Bibles, the whole letter of Jude is going to be on one page, and the beginning of the book of Revelation is going to be on another. So I want you to go ahead and make your way there. And while you're trying to find the book of Jude, I'm going to give you some time and introduce uh, what we are going to be doing this morning, but what we're going to be doing throughout the entire fall with you. Um, If you've been with us for any period of time, you know that in the last year, we have been on a consecutive study of the book of Acts. It's been a fantastic time as we have been looking at the scriptures, at, at the gospel that God has created, the gospel that God has promoted, the gospel that God has given us to proclaim, and the gospel that... God has used to transform us and create his church. And we've been looking at the formation of that message and of his church and the spread of the gospel uh, throughout the world in the book of Acts. And it was a fantastic time. And, and this fall, we're going to start something different. We're going to be doing a, a series that we're calling The Real God for the Real World. And you can find that series and all the titles in your worship God that you were given this morning. I want to say something off the bat. Um, just to get everything out there, to get all the cards on the table, uh, just so that you don't assume or presume anything that isn't true. The title for this sermon, well, excuse me, the title for this series and the majority of the titles for the sermons in this series, I I didn't create. I actually borrowed. Um, The title for the series and the title for the majority of the the sermons, I actually borrowed from a teaching from a class on doctrine from a London-based organization called the Porter Book Network, and they taught a class on on the doctrine of the scriptures and the doctrine of the Christian faith that was based on the Nicene Creed, and they called the class The Real God for the Real World, and we have actually taken that title, and we've actually taken some of the lecture titles, and we're using them for the titles of the series, so I want to go ahead and get that out there, because for the most part, just to kind of let you in on a secret, the titles are usually the last thing I do to a sermon. I mean, I'm usually writing the sermon on my way up here because the Holy Spirit is continuing to shape it. He's shaping it even as I talk. So titles, I don't know, I I might change the whole point of what I'm doing by the time I get up here. So titles are usually one of those things I've got to do for the bulletins for some strange reason. Um, So when you see all those titles, don't think we were actually creative. Uh, We actually borrowed those. Someone else was creative. But we are also going to borrow the the majority of of the point and and the base content from their class, not the actual sermons, but the fact that it was based on the Nicene Creed. And we are going to be using the Nicene Creed as a foundation for this series that we're going to be going through this fall. And, and so I want to take a few minutes to introduce some of you to the Nicene Creed. How many of you are, are familiar with the Nicene Creed? Maybe you've heard about it. A good percentage. How many of you grew up in a church or in a tradition where uh, when you gathered together on Sundays, you said the Nicene Creed together as a congregation? A few, uh, fewer than have actually heard of it. Let's start this way. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, and for those of you who have no background with what we're talking about, we'll start by trying to define what a creed is. You know what a creed is? It's It's a strange word for a lot of us today. We don't talk about creeds very often. But creeds are simply statements of belief. In fact, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which actually means I believe. So anytime you try to formulate a statement or you're trying to speak to someone or write something in which you're trying to say, this I believe, you are actually confessing a creed. That is actually a creed. It's saying that I believe X or Y. Everybody has a creed. Creeds aren't something that are tied to the antiquity of church history or or just wherever else you may have learned from them. Everybody has a creed. They might be poorly developed or 
poorly worded or not written down, but everybody actually has a creed. It's simply saying, this I believe. But more formally, when we're talking about something like the Nicene Creed, creeds were something that were, that were written, that were formulated, that were put down early on in the life of the church to help summarize and succinctly state the essentials of what was necessary for people to actually believe. Now, scholars actually believe that, that creeds in, in the life of the church didn't start with the early church post-resurrection, post-ascension of Christ, that you can actually find examples of formalized creeds as far back as the Old Testament. Many scholars actually believe that Deuteronomy chapter 6 contains one of the earliest creedal statements of, of Israel, of, of the church in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you may be familiar with the Shema, verse 4. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That was recited every single day by every Israelite. Scholars believe that that's one of the earliest examples in the Bible of a creed of of God's people that was said to succinctly summarize and state the essence of what it meant and what what they needed to believe in to be the people of God. You can find them in the New Testament as well. There's a few examples that scholars believe were early creeds, but the most familiar to most of you might be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, where the Apostle Paul says, that, says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And they believe this to be an early creed of the church, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Scholars believe that that was a creed that was often spoken in the early church that summarized the essence of, to them, the gospel, the person and the work of Christ and evidence for the belief that they actually had. But creeds did not simply originate in the time of Christ. It continued on in the early church from as quickly as... Uh, debatable, 70, 80 years after the ascension and the resurrection of Christ, you could find a much shorter and much simpler creed being espoused by the church throughout the Roman Empire that simply said this, Jesus is Lord. And that was a creed that all believers and followers of Christ would, would profess and would confess in the face of a culture and in the face of a world that demanded that they stand up whenever asked to give the creed of the time. That Caesar is Lord. And so up and against the creed, the belief, the culture of the time that declared that Caesar indeed was Lord, was God, the followers of Christ had their own creed where they would stand in the face of a, of a culture and of a government and they would say that, in fact, Jesus is Lord. And the confession of that belief cost many of them their lives. For some of you, you've heard of the martyrdom of the famous first century church father Polycarp. This was indeed why he was martyred. When demanded to confess before Caesar that Caesar was Lord, he would not do that. Instead, Jesus is Lord. That confession, that belief cost him his life. And as short and as sweet and as succinct as that creed was, you find in church history they began to develop. As the gospel would spread to different cultures and different regions and different questions would arise amongst the early followers of Christ, they would begin to succinctly formulate what it was that the scriptures or what the letters of the apostles that they were teaching and the teaching that was passed down, what it actually said and what it actually meant. And you find something as early as 190 AD from the bishop of Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, 
He, he formulated a creed for the church, and it simply said this. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith, the faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them and in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God. The church had a habit of trying to succinctly define for the followers of Christ the essence of what it meant to be a Christian, the essence of what we had to hold fast to as a follower of Christ. Creeds were ways that the early church was able to define the shape and the contours of the Christian faith. And as the gospel continued even from there to spread wider and reach into more cultures and more diverse experiences and more diverse beliefs, it became increasingly necessary again to continue to define and, and shape and summarize succinctly what it was the church believed. This is what happened with the development of what we call the Nicene Creed one of the most essential and important creeds in the history of the early church. The Nicene Creed was written in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, which was called together by the then emperor of Rome, Constantine. So Constantine decided that these bishops needed to gather together in the city of Nicaea and they needed to hammer out an answer to a problem that was beginning to tear apart his empire. You see, at this particular time, Constantine wasn't a Christian yet, but he was ruling in the Roman Empire, and he had just conquered an extensive area of land. And as he returned back to his throne in Rome, he became back to a rift and to a, 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 an argument that had been growing amongst the followers of Christ in his, in his territory in, in Rome. Now, though he wasn't a Christian, he was sympathetic to the Christian faith because he felt like it could provide a, a stable and unified environment for his people. So when the church began to argue amongst itself about an essential tenet of its faith, Constantine felt it was necessary to get this thing hammered out once for all. So he gathered 300 bishops of the church into the city of Nicaea, and he said, you guys need to deal with this. You see, there was a professor in Alexandria, a, a very loved professor in Alexandria named Arius. And Arius had been teaching that Jesus and God were not of the same essence. That Jesus was actually created by God. And though he was created by God, he might be the most representative way for us to actually relate to God so we could actually call him Lord, but he was not one with God. And the church began to rise up against this and protests began to break out in the streets. But the reality of it was Arius was loved by the church. People loved Arius. He was a nice guy. He taught well. He was popular with the people. And so counter-revolts broke out in the streets of Rome. And as the bishop of Rome was trying to get Arius kicked out of his position, and people began to rise up in his defense, church supporters began to rise up demanding for his role to be kicked out. And so in the midst of this, Constantine gathered these bishops together and he said, you guys need to hammer this out. We need to figure out once for all what the scriptures actually say about this. And so the bishops, 300 of them, gathered together in Nicaea and they debated and they overwhelmingly, you know, history records varying numbers of, of dissension, but overwhelmingly agreed that the scriptures declare that Jesus is indeed God, which is essential to the Christian faith and message. It's essential that they came to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed God, that when they worshiped Jesus, they didn't worship a creature. They worshiped a God that they were saved and they were created by God 
They didn't worship a created being. It was essential they came to this conclusion. And so when they did this and they arrived at this conclusion in 325, they actually began to formulate the essence then of the faith with this being the central tenet. And they wrote what became known as the Nicene Creed. And it goes like this. I'm going to read it to you. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And ever since 325 A.D., The Nicene Creed has been the predominant creed used in the discipleship of the church. It has been the predominant, succinct summation of the essentials of the biblical teaching, the gospel teaching of the church for the cultivation of the soul ever since 325 A.D. The Nicene Creed has been used by the church for centuries now to begin to help define and distinguish truth from error. It's been used by the church for centuries now as a foundation for identifying and then refuting heresy. It's been used for centuries now by the church to ensure a consistent body of teaching throughout the church. It's been used for the cultivation of the soul since 325 AD and it's been used for worship. The Nicene Creed has been used by churches around the world and still used by churches around the world today as a, as a creed and as a confession that the church can say together that this thing we believe, this together we believe, and they can proclaim and confess their faith in the one God corporately together in worship. Something else that it does as it is used by the church to cultivate the soul, as this sound doctrine is dug deeper and deeper into the hearts and lives of Christ's followers. It's not just used in corporate gathering for worship. It actually produces right worship in God's people. As God's people begin to treasure the riches of the person and work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right worship is produced in our lives. And those two things discipleship and worship. Those are really our aims for this particular series and why we're actually doing this and then why we're actually using the Nicene Creed. I really want, as we preach through each of the primary tenets of the, apost- of the, Deci- of the Nicene Creed, sorry about that, we've got 18,000 creeds now, the Nicene Creed throughout the fall, I-, I really want this series and this creed to help shape our confidence in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Not so that we can be intellectually satisfied or intellectually fulfilled or built up, but so that right worship and joy can be produced in our hearts 
And as we do that, as we work our way through uh, each of the essential tenets of the Nicene Creed, we'll have the opportunity then to actually look at challenges that we face in this day and age to confidence in right doctrine. We'll be able to look at all the things that rise up and, and create doubt and suspicion in our minds and our hearts about the things that the Nicene Creed says that as Christians we together profess to actually believe. And as we do that and we look at those, we'll have great opportunity together to actually take the riches of the Nicene Creed and the riches of the person and the character of the one true God and apply it directly to the realities of the life that you and I face today. In fact, if you scan just the titles of the sermons to come, you'll see how they're actually written to take the truth of what the creed says and apply it to the reality of a world that we face today. It's a real God for a very real world. The most importantly, when I was thinking about the aims that I had in doing this series and then why using this creed, I would be remiss without actually saying this, lest you don't just assume it. Let me actually say it. Most importantly, as we go through the Nicene Creed, my desire is actually to anchor all of the specific assertions and tenets of the Nicene Creed in the text of Scripture. See, we don't actually believe the Nicene Creed simply because it's the tradition of the church. We believe the Nicene Creed along with centuries of the church because we believe the Nicene Creed and everything that it says is faithful to Scripture. So we want to clearly take what the Creed says and attach it to the Scriptures so that your faith is not in what the Creed says but in who the Creed points to in the Scriptures. That's what we want to do. We don't believe the Creed for tradition's sake. We believe it because we believe it's faithful to what the Scriptures say. So those are my aims, discipleship and worship, cultivation of the soul, producing right joy and worship in the heart and life. Those are the aims. Now let me give you the motives. Two motives, one biblical, one cultural. Let me give you the biblical motive first. Hopefully you found the book of Jude now. You found the book of Jude? Short little letter. We're going to start in Jude 1, my favorite book of the Bible. That's why I named my son Jude. Starts like this, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, being very eager to write to you of our common salvation. Now, just an aside, I've always wanted to hear that letter. I have always wanted to know what the brother of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was going to write to the church about our common salvation. How amazing would that have been? I mean, the guy who grew up with Jesus, who gospel writers record did not believe in Jesus in his early ministry on earth, came to acknowledge his own brother as the very son of God and bent his knee to him as the Lord of the universe. I would love to know what he was going to say about our common salvation, but I've got to wait. That's a different sermon. Um, We'll know in eternity. But being very eager to write to you of our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here's what Jude is saying, and here's what I, I want to point out, and this is the biblical aim for why we're doing this this fall. There is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, and it is a faith worth contending for and it is a faith capable of sustaining you and keeping you for God's glory and your deepest joy. There is, first of all, 
of faith. Jude actually said, the faith. Now, I've named my son after Jude. I named my daughter after John Piper. So let him shed some light on this. There are truths about God and Christ and man and the church and the world which are essential to the life of Christianity. If they are lost or distorted, the result will not be merely wrong ideas. Now listen to this. But misplaced trust. The inner life of faith is not independent from the doctrinal statement of faith. When doctrine goes bad, so do hearts. There is a body of doctrine then which must be preserved. Here's why we're doing this. Because there is a faith once for all handed down from God to the apostles, to the church. And truth is at stake. And because truth is at stake, your heart is at stake. Because your heart is at stake, your joy is at stake. This is why we're doing this. And because your heart and your joy is at stake and the truth is at stake, God's glory is at stake as well. So there is a faith. The faith, Jude said. And whatever diversity we may have in the way we view it, the inspired writings of Scripture right here and the way the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write this letter definitely lay emphasis on the unity of the faith. There is a faith. This was the aim of the creeds. What is the essential thing that we need to be unified and defined by? There is a body of doctrine that remains in what we call around here a closed hand. It's not up for debate. It's necessary for all of those who call themselves followers of Christ to hold fast to this body of doctrine. Without holding fast to this body of doctrine, this closed hand, we're no longer, as Paul said, in step with the faith, in step with the gospel. So first thing Jude says, there there actually is a faith, the faith, a faith. And it's been once for all delivered to the saints. God's revelation, God's revelation about this faith, about this body of doctrine, about that which is essential for a follower of Christ, is finished. His revelation about the essentials of the follower of Christ that he must believe is finished. He is no longer revealing new truths about what it means and what's essential for a person to call themselves a Christian. The church, Paul said, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The faith handed down to them from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, I believe. Anyone who comes along and claims then to have a, a new word about God, a new definition for the Christian faith, a new essential that must actually be held tight to call yourself a follower of Christ. Anyone who has a new word from God to add to the faith once for all delivered to the saints is now speaking against Scripture. They're now speaking against Scripture. But more than that, because, you know, I, honestly, as I was thinking about this, that's actually more rare in our day than my tone might make it seem. What's more prevalent in our day was something in the quote that I read you that John Piper said. It's not so much that people are coming up with new revelations that we have to believe to be a Christian. It's that they're distorting that which has already been proclaimed. Distortions of the essentials of the Christian faith undermine confidence, ultimately undermine trust, and ultimately then undermine the glory of God. 
And so we've got to be clear. What was the faith once for all delivered from God to the saints passed on to the church? There is a faith once for all delivered. This faith, this doctrine, Jude says, is worth contending for. There are closed-hand truths, essentials that must be believed by a follower of Christ that we've got to be willing to contend for. And when I say contend for, I'm not using it in the most aggressive and kind of um, uh, hostile sense of the word. Uh, Take that out of contending against heresy. Let's take it out of that bucket for a second and let's talk about contending for this faith, this doctrine, this essential unity of belief in your own soul. It must be worth paying attention to your own heart It must be worth contending against the suspicions and the doubts and the struggles, oftentimes even the lies that are told to you. It's worth you contending with your own heart to make sure that you hold fast to the essentials of this faith. It's worth contending for. There are secondary issues, things that we hold in an open hand. We'll say that around here sometimes. Is it a closed hand issue or an open hand issue? They're not worth contending for when it comes to our relationship with one another. When it comes down to how you school your children, public school, private school, homeschool, unschool, no school, whatever it is out there, it's not worth contending for amongst one another. And I use that language particularly. It's not worth contending for amongst one another because the thing that Jude highlights and the scriptures highlight, Jesus highlights it, Paul highlights it, Jude highlights it right here, is that the most challenge to the essential, the greatest challenge to the essentials of the Christian faith do not essentially come from outside the church. They come from within us. Our own hearts, our own souls, the church body itself. This is the very thing that the Council of Nicaea was gathered together to deal with. A professor, a teacher of the church had come to a distorted view of the essentials about who God and who Christ really were. And that teaching sought, not intentionally on his part, he wasn't malicious towards the church, but that distortion of the truth of Scripture sought to undermine the very gospel we place our hope and faith in. So we've got to be very clear on what are closed-handed and what are open-handed issues and what's worth even contending then amongst ourselves for. Because some, Jude said, have gained by, some have gained admission by some who are long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be clear of the essentials so that we can even identify and begin to unpack and untangle the distortions, that's the way it's been ever since the church. Jesus said it, Paul said it, Jude was watching it happen. The church in Rome dealt with it in the Council of Nicaea. Now, that's the biblical motive for why we do this because there is a faith that we must hold, down, hold to. It's been once for all passed down from God to the church through the apostles. It's worth contending for. And if we don't contend for it and we don't get it right and we allow it to be distorted, The glory of God is at stake. Our joy, our passion, our trust are at stake. And ultimately, ultimately, when we stand before God himself and have to give an answer, who do we say that Christ is? Our eternal life is at stake and how we answer some of these doctrines. So that's my biblical 
rationale, my biblical motive for this. Now, the cultural motive. What's the cultural motive for this particular series? Well, Christian Smith, he is a sociologist, a professor of sociology at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Some of you may be familiar with this. He did a study about 10 years ago. Um, that he, did, he started the study about 15 years ago, and it was a six-year study. It came out about eight years ago um, that studied the religious life, the religious ideas, the, the conception of religion uh, amongst the life of American teenagers. Now, if you do your math, those teenagers are now young adults. And those teenagers began to learn and their, their beliefs and their foundations were cultivated in the churches that they attended and the families that they grew up in. So we're talking about young adults now. So nobody in this room is, is out from under this study. You either taught these guys or you are one of these guys. He did a study on the relig- religious life of teens at the time and here were his five summary conclusions. This is the, what he would call the creed of American religion. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. This God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. Those are the five essential tenets to what Christian Smith and his colleagues would call the new creed of American Christendom. And I'm going to let him speak for himself because I'm I'm not going to put words in his mouth. I'm going to read you some of his study just to help explain what he just said. The conclusion that he and his colleagues came to was that the beliefs in America now constituted the normative creed of American religion that they call moralistic therapeutic deism. In their own words, moralistic therapeutic deism is about inculcating or creating or cultivating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, at work on your own self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. Regardless of their age, these individuals believe that religion should not be centered in, should be centered in being nice, a posture that many believe is directly violated by assertions of a strong theological conviction. Moralistic therapeutic deism is also about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. This is not a religion of repentance from sin. Listen to the words he uses. This is a sociologist from Chapel Hill. This is not a religion about repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of of the sovereign deity, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice, etc., Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among United States teenagers is essentially about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. Where do you think they have learned this? It is about obtaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. Moralistic, therapeutic, and in addition, now listen to this. Moralistic, therapeutic deism presents, in his own words, a unique understanding of God. Moralistic therapeutic deism is about a belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a very safe distance. It goes on to say that MTD, I'll just shorten it, may now constitute something like a dominant civil religion, 
that constitutes the belief system for the entire American religious culture at large. MTD is colonizing, he said, Christianity itself. As this new civil religion seduces converts, now listen to what he said. This is, this is central to what we're talking about and why we're about to do what we're going to do. This new civil religion seduces converts who never have to leave their congregations or Christian identification as they embrace this new faith and all of its undermining dimensions. Consider what he, he just said and what he's about to say. Other more accomplished scholars in these areas will have to examine and evaluate all of what I'm saying in greater depth. But we can say here that we have come with some confidence to the conclusion that a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historic Christian tradition. But rather, substantially, it has substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian, moralistic, therapeutic deism. We live in a nation that largely considers itself Christian, overwhelmingly believes in some deity, considers itself fervently religious, but has virtually no connection to historic Christianity, and most don't have to leave their congregations to follow. That is the cultural motive for why we're doing the series that we're doing. And as you listen to things like that, you have to ask yourself, how well does that actually describe you? It's okay. How well does Christian Smith's Christian moralistic therapeutic deism actually describe you? If you find yourself resonating with much of what he said, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you are here. We are going to spend the next several weeks unpacking the essential, the essential truths of the Christian faith, a real God for a very real world that deals with an age and an idea that purports a moralistic, therapeutic, deist approach to life. See, into this culture, into this idea, into this faith that calls itself Christian but has tenuously no connection to historical Christianity, the Nicene Creed cuts straight in like a knife with hot, and hot butter, or a hot knife in butter. I got that one backwards, didn't I? Hot butter. We need rolls and biscuits for that. Hot knife in butter. I need to write those things down so I don't do that. It cuts into a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic mindset and age and presents one God as he has defined himself as the Father and what that means for who you are. As the Almighty, as the creator of all things, presents himself in his Son in his birth, in his life, in his substitutionary death, in his resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Presents himself as the Holy Spirit, the one who brings dead hearts to life, the regenerator of our heart, the transformer of our soul. Nicene Creed cuts straight into this particular age. And J.I. Packer said that the whole story of the Father's Christ-exalting plan of redeeming love from eternity to eternity must be told or the radical reorientation of life for which the gospel calls will not be understood and the required total shift from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness 
will not take place. All that the creed covers needs to be grasped as an integral part of the message of the saving love of God. The creed cuts right straight into this day and cultivates our heart to hold fast to the saving message of the gospel. And I wish we had time to do every single word in the creed because you better believe that every single word was fought for and labored over, but we don't have time. So week after week for this fall, we're gonna take proposition or assertion by assertion what it says about who God is and what that means for how we understand who we are in the life that we live today. And, and we'll close today, but I just want you to hear the first few words that set the foundation for the rest of the creed. I mean, I wish we could hammer over each of these like they did. But the creed starts like this. We believe in. Three very important words that are going to be repeated four times throughout the creed. We believe in. And I wish we could take a whole week to talk about why they start with we. Why it doesn't start with I. And what that says about the fact that our faith is indeed personal, but it's not individualistic. And what that means about the way we approach it right here, right now, in this day and age, that says anything but that. I wish we had time, but we don't. Instead, I just want you to think about what they're saying when they say, we believe in. That phrase is a translation of a Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament that's actually better translated, we are believing into. That's what the word actually means. We are believing into. In English, we take that Greek word and we translate it to get a noun out of it. And do you know what that word is? Faith. Faith. Not belief. Faith. There's a difference between belief and faith. Belief has an element of mental agreement and intellectual agreement to it. Faith is like belief with legs. You ever been in the business world or anything where somebody said, that's got an idea with legs on it? That idea can go somewhere? Belief is different than faith. Faith is like belief with legs on it. This word that they use in the beginning of this creed, we are believing into, sets the stage for communicating to us every time we proclaim it and every time we read what follows it that we cannot separate what we actually believe from how we actually live. Our faith is a conviction. It's, it's, an, it's a knowledge that gives birth to a behavior. I think I've told this story here before, but John Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands and a cannibalistic, unreached people group, when he got there and he was doing work amongst some of the tribes on the island, he was coming up against a struggle in translating the Bible in their language the more he began to learn it because he began to struggle with the fact that this tribe had no word in their language for what he understood faith to mean. How can you translate the Bible? And how can you proclaim the gospel? And how can you demand a response when there's no word in the language for faith? And one day, his biographer is recorded, and I like to think it's true because it's a great story, that he was out one day hunting with some of the men on the island. 
And when they came back in from a long hunt, they gathered back into the huts in which they lived. And they had a habit of after, you know, these guys didn't have trucks and jeeps and guns. They're out running through the woods. And after coming back in from a long hunt, they would throw themselves and their bodies into these things that are kind of like hammocks that we would have, but they were their version of chairs. And they would throw their bodies into these hammocks and fall back into them in exhaustion from all of their work. And they had a word for that. And one day, while he was praying and trying to do translation on the scriptures for this tribe, that word came to mind, and he translated faith by using that word that they used for leaning their entire bodies and all of their weight and all of their trust into this hammock. And I think it's one of the most beautiful and dense understandings of what faith actually is. Faith is actually leaning into something with everything that you are. Everything that you actually believe and that it actually constitutes an action with it. They didn't just think that that thing could hold me up. They actually got in it and laid back and allowed it to support their weight. And that's what faith really is. And the one thing about the creed that I absolutely love, and you'll see it week in and week out, is that when it comes to the object of our faith, what we are to lean our entire bodies and our entire souls and our entire beings into is not a set of propositional truths. It's not an idea. They didn't develop a systematic theology with an outline that we had to find a way to agree with and then figure out how we actually responded to it. The creed demands that what we are believing into is not a set of truths, but indeed it's a person. We are believing into one God as he has revealed himself. And we are believing into his son, Jesus Christ. And we are believing into the Holy Spirit. And that makes all the difference. Because I can agree with you that something is true. But until I actually do something about it, or allow whatever you have told me or said to me to shape the way I live, I don't actually have faith in it. And I don't actually have faith in you. Let me close with it this way. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Raymond preached from 2 Timothy last week. I just want to show you what this looks like in the scripture. I just want you to see this. And it's going to shape the way we go forward from here out. Paul writing to Timothy. He said this, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. That's where I got my other daughter's name. If I need to quote Owen, I've got my whole family in here. Um, And your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. For this reason, now for this reason, that he's certain that Timothy has a sincere faith. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love of self-control. Therefore, because God gave you this spirit, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. There must be some fear or some doubt going on there. But instead of being ashamed or afraid, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, not your own effort, but the power of God, who, God, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which, the gospel, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which, because he's a preacher of the gospel, is why I suffer as I do. 
suffering. Now listen to what he says. This is what I was trying to get. Listen to what he says. Suffering because he's a proclaimer of the gospel. Encouraging Timothy to suffer because of the sincere faith that he has in the person and work of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of it. But I am not ashamed. Listen to the confidence he has and the ground for the confidence that he has. Listen to what has produced confidence and joy and passion in the face of doubt and suspicion and hardship and tragedy. Listen to what is the ground for his faith. For I know whom, whom I have believed. And because I know whom I have believed, who they are, therefore I am convinced that he, one God, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And now he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. This faith, this common salvation, follow it. But by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, now guard it. Guard it. It's been entrusted to you. Paul does not say, I know what I believed. He doesn't say, I know how much I believed. He doesn't say, I know when I believed. He doesn't even say, I know why I believed. He said, I know whom I have believed. And that makes all the difference in the world. We'll close with a little Spurgeon. Spurgeon reading that text. He said, it's as if Paul is saying, I know the person into whose hand I have committed my present condition, into whose hand I have leaned all that I am, my entire being and weight into. I have... I know who I've committed my present condition and my eternal destiny. I know who he is. And because I know who he is, I therefore, without any hesitation, leave myself in his hands. This is the beginning of spiritual life, to believe in one God, the Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to to know you, to know who we believe. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, that you would create a sincere faith, a sincere trust, a sincere devotion in each one of our hearts. I pray that you would clarify the truth of who you are over and against the doubts that we face. I pray that in the weeks to come, from today forward, I pray that the Holy Spirit would I pray that you would clarify for each one of us the distinctives of who you are, that you are the real God that we need in this very real world. And we ask that in this, it would not simply be a mental exercise, an intellectual exercise, but that it would produce faith, that you would produce faith that would shape our actions and shape our passions and shape our worship for your glory. Amen.